everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Anna. I'm Will. And today we're thrilled to have Michael Fortner with us. Michael is a professor of political science at the City University of New York's Graduate Center. He earned his bachelor's degree from Emory University before graduating from Harvard University for his master's and PhD. He studies the intersection of American political development and political philosophy and is the author of Black Silent Majority, The Rockefeller Drug Laws and the Politics of Punishment. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Thank you for having me. To get started, we like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Can you share a moment with us? Sure. Um, I'm fortunate enough, or maybe not so fortunate, to have lived a life full of inflection points. But the biggest one for me was going to boarding school. So I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, a very uh, difficult neighborhood, um, poor neighborhood, violent neighborhood, and life was a struggle. And then um, for uh, some strange reason, I ended up at Andover, um, Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts, the, the boarding school. And that was a, um, it wasn't Brooklyn. <laughs> it was sort of this beautiful campus that was focused on ideas and learning and community, um, scholarship and virtue. Um, and at that point, I fell in love with ideas. I fell in love with education. I fell in love with writing. I'll never forget, my favorite class was this English class. It was on memoir. And we had to read Malcolm X's autobiography and a variety of other things, but we also had to write our own memoir for the class. And and towards the end of the semester, the professor, he actually had us read it to to the class in his home, which was on campus. And I remember him sitting in this sort of old New England home, um, petting his dog, and at some point crying while I was reading um, my memoir. And after that, I said, this is for me, this is my life, this type of intellectual engagement, this sort of personal attachment to people that you get in the classroom, that you get when you care about learning. Um, This is what I want to do, would be a part of for the rest of my life. Do you think that that experience that was brought out uh, in high school for you is just something that's in your bones? Or do you think that uh, growing up initially in very different circumstances kind of helped draw that out once you had an experience uh, later on? I think it's both. I mean, one of the, the interesting parts of my childhood um, is that my mother was a minister, and so I grew up in the church. And, and part of that was, um, for, for good and for bad, reading the Bible all the time and going to Bible study, um, and 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 living in 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 a different way, a culture of learning. Right. Where you are every Sunday and, and during Bible study, sort of engaging a text. Right. And at the time, I thought the King James Version was just sort of beautiful language and analyzing it and hearing someone sort of teach you about it and, and get you engaged. Um, I guess that's where I sort of fell in love with that type of um, environment context. And then, you know, when I got to Andover and, and, and seeing it in this sort of beautiful, secular way, um, I was like, this is for me. Mm -hmm. So turning towards uh, 
towards your scholarship. Uh, was there like what what really inspired you to sort of write um, your book? I know the topic and sort of your findings came as a surprise for some people. Did you sort of like stumble upon the topic or did you like like what really sort of drove you to to look into this issue? So I was actually not at all involved in this literature, in this topic. And um, I was working on my dissertation. It was, it was, you know, towards the latter end of my time at Harvard. And this book came out, The New Jim Crow, and everyone was talking about this book. And I was like, oh, wow, what's going on? And I hadn't read it, but it was everywhere. Um, and then eventually I read the book, and I thought, wow, this is different. <laughs> um, it's provocative, um, but it's profoundly wrong in a lot of respects. And um, I thought it was wrong because of my own experiences with violence and crime and drug addiction. And I thought there are core parts of the black experience, um, the agency of black people, the voices of black people that was sort of left out of the text. So I said, you know what, I'm going to stop what I'm doing right now um, and start exploring this because there has to be something here. My past um, could not have been unique. Um, and so I went in search of, you know, a history around the Rockefeller drug laws to see the role that African-Americans played in their passage. I think that uh, one of the reasons that the book by Michelle Alexander, New Jim Crow, is so influential, especially in the activist and campus environment. It's something I've been assigned in class. It's something I know many of my peers have read and take very seriously is because it's a narrative that comports very well with the political goals that you might even share with Michelle Alexander. But nonetheless, uh, some of your critics have said that your work would run right in the opposite direction. I know that one said specifically, if you take the activism of his, your, uh, black silent majority at face value, then mass incarceration would seem a logical and just outcome. Do you agree with that that's the end point of your research? Sort of logical and just. The problem is the just, right? If you, if you this person, uh, I don't think finished the book <laughs> or read all of it, right? Because there's no, there's nothing in the book that argues that what happened was just. There's nothing in the book that says just because African Americans played a role in the passage of these drug laws makes them right. There's nothing in the book that validates the drug laws. In fact, I, I believe, I hope, if you read the book, um, you'll feel that I'm sort of critical of what they're doing and how they viewed drug addicts and criminals and poor people in, in general. Um, but I do think if you take at face value the activism that's in the book, you 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 would you would believe that black folk can play a role in both the passage of punitive policies, but also the passage of reform, right? And I think the narrative, the, the new Jim Crow narrative cannot explain what's been going on right now, which is a lot of criminal justice reform, and that's been coming about because of activism of black folk, right, and their white allies. And so I think my narrative helps explain both this moment of retrenchment and progressive um, criminal policy and this new moment of reform. I think we should take a step back for a moment and for listeners who are less familiar with your work and your book, uh, just explain how your research and even your lived experience uh, causes you to differ 
from uh, Michelle Alexander's thesis and from the understanding that listeners might have about mass incarceration. Right. So the core thesis of Michelle Alexander is that the the modern prison system is the result of a drug war, right? And the drug war came about for the specific purpose of creating a new system of social control that had been um, demolished in part by the civil rights movement. So Alexander says, well, look, white supremacy, right, must exist. And so if we cannot exist in this old form, we we need a new form. And then all of a sudden, now we have prisons, right? And the drug war was a mechanism for this. What the book does is to, to go into Harlem and look at how drug addiction and crime affected black folk and then look at their mobilization for uh, more punitive policies, right? And what I find is that organizations like the NAACP, black churches, black other black civic groups are mobilized for public safety, and they're sort of changing the conversation um, and making it sort of more punitive. And the the book argues that, in addition to the political imperatives of Governor Rockefeller, helps explain this moment of retrenchment and progressive crime policy. So sort of going off of that point, some people did sort of respond to your work with criticism. How do you sort of like respond to that? How do you deal with that? Oftentimes, um, like you said, when it's possible that people haven't read your whole book, sort of how do you, how do you overcome those criticisms or, or respond to them? Sometimes you can't, right? Uh, um, sometimes you have to just sort of sit there and let people beat up on you um, in silence. Uh, I, I chose not to in some cases. And so um, uh, the piece, there was a critical piece um, of, of the book in the New York Times. I immediately wrote the editor saying, this is garbage. Um, and they published the letter. Thank you. Um, and, and then I also wrote an op-ed, which they published. Um, and then there was another review that um, was, also garbage. Um, and then I wrote a response and they published the response. And so when I can fight back, I fight back in, in writing. Um, otherwise, you just sort of have to sit there and, and watch people discuss you. Um, and sometimes it's sort of exciting. I, I remember going on Twitter and and all of a sudden people are talking about me and I'm like, oh my God. Right? And I'm not there. And then I'm like, wait a second, did you just say that about me? Um, and they were sort of saying all awful things, some good things too, right? Um, but, you know, it, it is what it is. And so you have to have tough skin and, and believe in your work um, in order to endure. Has this experience of having a work that challenges uh, some of the popular and mainstream psyche and really does have an influence on the debate around the issue affected where you see your scholarship going in the future? Do you think there are lessons learned for what you're going to do next? That's a great question. Um, and and and. Uh, you know, at some points you're like, my next book project, I'm just going to keep it simple. <laughs> Give the people what they want, right? Um, but that's not me. And so um, I think one of the things that I almost learned was to play it safe after this. Um, and then I thought, well, if you play it safe, you would not have written this book, right? Um, so the lesson I learned is, in fact, sort of follow um, your instincts, right? And, and, and also as a social scientist, follow the evidence and um, I think the, 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 the evidence in the book supports the argument and if anything the criticism has forced me to be a better social scientist and so I'm, I'm grateful for that and, and so going forward I'm going to be um, sort of tighter with the evidence tighter with the prose but as ambitious um, with the theory as I possibly can be 
So I was looking on Twitter uh, and I saw one of your uh, sort of interactions with one of your followers who said he was really surprised by how similar everything in your book was with regard to incar- uh, incarceration policies in the 1950s uh, and the, the parallels today. Uh, so going off of sort of that point and your research, now that you've sort of written this book about uh, that time period in the 1950s and 60s, what do you see as being uh, sort of the path forward with regard to the flaws of our current incarceration system? Well, I think we're um, moving in the right direction. Um, we're decriminalizing um, marijuana in a lot of places, and I think that's helpful. Um we are um, pushing sentencing reform, and I think that's helpful. Um, we're reforming the bail system. I think that's helpful. Um, but I also think we we are um, fighting crime in, in some places in, in effective ways, in some places not so effective. Um, and so I think if we're going to um, continue down this road, we need to um, take crime seriously. And so I hope that as we are focused on um, demolishing the modern prison system, we also stay focused on fighting crime. You say we're fighting crime in in effective ways. I just want to drill down a little bit on what you mean by that, because I think that a lot of people on a college campus, if they said the phrase, we're fighting crime in an ineffective way, they would mean we're doing too much. Uh, We're not being smart. We're being uh, using too much force in the criminal justice and law enforcement system. Uh, But I sense from your saying that we're not taking crime seriously still, you might mean just the opposite. What does it mean to not? Well, in between, right? And so I I buy the argument that many black communities are over-policed but under-protected, right? That is, that that the ways in which policing occurs is usually harsh and ineffective ways. Um, So... I, I oppose that. I don't support police brutality. Um, and but with that said, I do think if you if you think about Chicago every so often, right? Um, and children dying because of stray bullets, you have to think, well, we need policing here. Um, and so what does effective policing means? It usually means community policing outreach to um, community groups, um, individuals. It means using data uh, effectively. Um, we know that in, in many areas, it's just a small minority of people causing most of the crime. And so having sort of good data tools to drill down and find out where that's happening is helpful. So I think there's a way to be um, aggressive in policing without being brutal to people. Um, and, and the more we're able to do that, I think the better off we'll be. I know that a lot of Americans uh, sort of feel a sense of distrust towards law enforcement, especially after uh, all the incidents of police brutality that we've seen over the past five years or so. Is it possible that the relationship between law enforcement uh, and a lot of communities is in some respects, like too frayed or like how do we sort of reconcile the gap between uh, the groups that law enforcement are supposed to be protecting and a sense of distrust towards law enforcement? But I I think we need to complicate um, how we understand the distrust. Um, The the traditional story is the distrust is only because of brutality. Um, I think there's significant evidence. And and in my book, I I show that part of the distrust is they're they're angry that 
cops are not doing enough <laughs> to fight crime, right? Um, there are a lot of unsolved murders in communities. That causes distrust. When the cops do not sort of show up when you need them, but show up when you don't need them, <laughs> that causes distrust. So I think um, if we can find a way again to make police effective agents in fighting crime in neighborhoods, that will help with the distrust. I hate to ask you to try to figure out the entire puzzle of the criminal justice and law enforcement. But go for it. Go for it. Why not? Nonetheless, uh, it's probably a less persuasive and exciting slogan uh, to say uh, police forces are racist. They're uh, using indiscriminate force. But also, we need to keep in mind that we have to be very aggressive and taking care of right. all of these problems right. that uh, you know really are serious. It, it, to not have a monocausal narrative of what the problem of criminal justice in this country is is a more difficult uh, political movement. How should movements like Black Lives Matter that are bringing these issues into the forefront of the American mind change their messaging uh, along the lines of your research to take seriously the issues you're talking about of reforming the criminal justice system while also keeping in mind the very real reasons that uh, law enforcement is helpful in some cases? So some movements can't because they don't believe in it. I mean, at the core of some of these movements is um, an abolitionist belief that we need to abolish police and prisons. And so that's their uh, ideological goal. That's their political project. And they believe that that would um, end crime. And so there's there's no part of my nuanced analysis that they would probably buy. Um, and, and I think that's unfortunate because I, I do think where most black folk are in, in survey data sort of shows this is not that, again, they want um, police brutality, but they want police to be effective in their communities. And so um, I think it's you know, I think it's very simple to have a, a, a slogan of some sort that that's for effective policing, community policing. Um, in many ways, is is a phrase that says all you need to say, um, and, and and suggesting that we want to make people's lives better, communities safer, but we want to do it in a way in which the communities themselves trust us and trust what we're doing. Well, after having asked you to solve all of America's law enforcement problems, I'm now going to ask you an equally difficult question, Uh which is the last question that we ask all of our guests. And that's uh, how you would define success and how you would advise our audience, students, to define success for themselves. Wow. Um, For me, success is um, fulfilling your purpose in a very simple way. Um, and I know it sounds trite, but there's there's a point at which you figure out or you don't in a career or in a job that this is where I'm supposed to be. And and, and without a broader theological <laughs> basis to it, but that, that this place feels right in profound ways that I am, even when it's hard, finding joy in the labor um, and even when when it's good, I sort of enjoy the fruits just as much. Um, so 
you are successful if you find yourself in a place of purpose, if you find yourself in a position in which you are constantly uplifting your own spirit, you are constantly um, uplifting the spirit of others, you are constantly learning and teaching um, and being taught right, um, by others. I think for me, that's success. Unfortunately, that's all the time for we have all the time we have for today. Thank you, Michael, for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.